0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, April 3rd. I'm Marco Werman. The U.S. puts a $10 million bounty on the head of a Pakistani terror suspect One expert says Washington is stepping up its counterterrorism campaign in the region.
1: This very public announcement puts the Pakistanis on the spot and forces them to actually either come clean or to continue to play this game of collaborating with dangerous groups.
0: Also today, bin Laden's widows may soon be going home to Yemen and Saudi Arabia, plus no peace talks yet between Colombia's government and the FARC.
2: rise the world is made possible in part by Medtronic searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon application and information available at medtronic.com/globalheroes and by WGBH producer of Nova with Hunting the Elements David Pogue technology correspondent of the New York Times guides viewers through the world of weird extreme chemistry Wednesday, April 4th at 9, 8 central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The United States is now offering a $10 million bounty for a man that many Americans probably have never heard of. His name is Hafiz Mohammed Saeed, and he's the founder of a Pakistani militant group, Lashkar-e-Taiba. At this point, there's only one other figure on the State Department's most wanted list who would command a larger reward. That's al-Qaeda's current leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Brian Kutoulos is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress in Washington. Brian, first of all, who is Hafiz Muhammad Saeed?
1: He is the leader of a charity organization called jamaat e dawa And this charity organization is broadly viewed to be a cover organization for one of the most dangerous terrorist groups, Lakshari Taiba. This is a terrorist group that is Islamist. It's based in Pakistan and it's operated Not only in Pakistan, but has conducted operations in India, and in particular in the conflict between India and Pakistan in the disputed territories of Kashmir. So he's a prominent individual who's been noted to be tied to a number of terrorist activities, including the November 2008 Mumbai attacks. Right. As
0: you said, uh, those attacks took place in 2008. Why is the State Department taking this action now?
1: I think they've tried... Through many means, over the last three years, the Obama administration has tried to get Pakistani authorities to take this individual and its organizations and the threats it represents more seriously, and they've got no for an answer. So I think publicly announcing uh, this reward at this time, I think, is a very important signal at a time when the United States and Pakistan are essentially renegotiating the relationship it's had over the last couple of years. And I think it's sending this message of saying to the Pakistani leaders that we're willing to renegotiate our relationship, but there are certain things that we're not gonna negotiate. And that's your harboring of terrorist individuals like Hafiz Saeed.
0: And as for India, where those attacks took place in 2008 in Mumbai, how has India reacted? Is this something they'd been anticipating from the US?
1: Well, this is something they've been calling on the United States to do for a while. As we mentioned, Lakshar Taiba known in short as L.E.T., has threatened India and killed hundreds of Indians in a series of attacks. So I think this was announced and India responded quite positively, saying, look, finally, you're, you know, the United States is taking another step to try to send this message to the Pakistani security establishment, especially the InterServices Intelligence, the main intelligence organization that has been alleged to have ties and offered support to this group. So
0: Saeed lives openly in Pakistan, but as we're about to hear from another reporter, there are so many questions about uh, Osama bin Laden and how he was able to uh, reside unimpeded in Pakistan for more than a decade. Will there be more pressure to track down Saeed, or is the stage set for another Navy SEAL team to go in and get him?
1: I doubt uh, a Navy SEAL team can go in and get him. He's in mostly lives in the eastern city of Lahore. It's a much more difficult operation. What I see this announcement by the obama administration as is the next step in a very aggressive and multifaceted counterterrorism campaign in pakistan it's a campaign that i think comes after several years of not so benign neglect of the terrorist threats that were existing in pakistan and the obama administration has used drone strikes it's used things like the assault on the bin laden compound last may it's placed more intelligence operatives on the ground and now it's trying to use the power of diplomacy and publicly naming individuals like this to try to put pressure on the Pakistani authorities to deal with this threat.
0: How will the Pakistani authorities respond to that? Because the relations between the U.S. and Pakistan right now are not so good.
1: Yeah, they're at an a all-time low. I suspect that the initial reactions won't be positive, but the simple case can be made here that this is an individual that has close ties to people who have killed others in terror attacks. And I think this very public announcement puts the Pakistanis on the spot and forces them to actually either come clean or to continue to play this game of collaborating with dangerous groups like Lakshai Taiba.
0: Brian Katulis at the Center for American Progress. Thanks very much indeed. Great, thank you. Osama bin Laden also had a U.S. bounty on his head, but the $25 million were not paid out after U.S. Navy SEALs tracked down and killed the al-Qaeda leader in Pakistan last year. His three wives and two adult daughters, who were in the Abbottabad compound with bin Laden, ended up in Pakistani custody after the raid. They've been under house arrest since then. Yesterday, a Pakistani court ordered that they be deported to their home countries, Yemen and Saudi Arabia, by April 15. Declan Walsh is the New York Times-Pakistan correspondent. He joins us from Islamabad. How surprising is it, Declan, that Pakistani authorities say that they will deport these women rather than continue to hold on to them?
3: You know, the whole thing is quite puzzling. Just a month ago, we had indications from the Pakistani authorities that they were going to deport these women immediately to their countries. Then all of a sudden, there was this effort to prosecute them. Under the laws here, they would have potentially faced up to five years in prison. Instead, in the end, the court was quite lenient. And it it really just raises questions that have come up through their testimony about you know, how they managed to stay with bin Laden on the run all those years. And secondly, it raises questions about what further they might have to add about the movements of Osama bin Laden, about the workings of Al Qaeda here in Pakistan before the Americans uh, caught up with them last May.
0: Right, because you'd think that Osama bin Laden's three wives and two adult daughters, they'd be considered associates of uh, bin Laden at the highest level and therefore an important source of intelligence.
3: Well, it's not clear whether they would be considered as terrorist associates as such. It's, we really don't know whether they played any active role in the workings of Al Qaeda. But what we do know is that these are people who would be intimately aware of his movements pretty much over the entire 10 year period when bin Laden was on the run, very much a fugitive from pretty much all of the intellig- major intelligence agency of the western world at the very least and they would have the answers to a lot of these questions that you know we in the west have been puzzling over all of this time about how did bin laden manage to evade the cia and other authorities you know where was he hiding and most particularly here in pakistan the question of course is who was hiding him mm. so they certainly have some very sensitive information in their possession And a lot of speculation about why they were being prosecuted centered on that idea that maybe people wanted to, you know, keep control of them in order to control what information they'd be able to give the outside world. What's been the
0: reaction in Pakistan to this outcome, this deportation?
3: (laughs) It's been barely uh, low key, to be honest, and Pakistanis are concentrated on other things at the moment. There is a parliamentary debate that's ongoing, which is about the broader relationship with the US. So the bin Laden wives have been uh, in the background, but it still raises a lot of uncomfortable questions, particularly for Pakistani intelligence, about how they managed to stay at large in Pakistan for so many years. And it raises questions about just who exactly was helping them.
0: Yeah, good question. I mean, after the U.S. raid on the bin Laden compound, uh, just one question that stands out. uh, Whose jurisdiction have these people been under and who has been behind the decisions about what to charge them with?
3: Well, in the very beginning, this was all extremely cloudy. Uh, These women just disappeared into the custody of Pakistani intelligence. They have been debriefed and interrogated for a large part of the last nine months or so. As we understand it, the youngest wife, Amal, she's the lady who's from Yemen, has been most cooperative in the sense that she's spoken to the authorities, she's outlined uh, certainly a version of what happened over the last decade. But the other two wives, both of whom are from Saudi Arabia, have apparently been much less cooperative. They've told the investigators next to nothing, as far as we know. And all three wives have... I think briefly, certainly, been interrogated or spoken with American investigators. But I think because relations with Pakistan have been so poor for most of that time, the Americans have to some degree relied on secondhand accounts that they have gotten through Pakistani intelligence.
0: Now, Declan, some of our listeners may recall that there was a second helicopter in last year's raid on the bin Laden compound. That helicopter crashed. Is it known whether the U.S. was hoping to use that chopper to transport the bin Laden family somewhere?
3: It's really not clear. In fact, there were at least three helicopters involved in the operation on Pakistani soil. You had two helicopters at the bin Laden site. You had a third helicopter that was waiting at a mountain location as a backup in case something went wrong with one of the first two, which of course is is what happened. Um, We just don't have enough information at the moment to know exactly what the intentions were towards the wives. After bin Laden was killed, The U.S. forces left with his body, but they left behind notably his wife. One of his wives, the youngest one, Amal, was wounded, but the Americans notably did not choose to take her with them. In fact, obviously, they didn't take anybody with them. They only took bin Laden's body and they left her behind. And they were discovered some hours later by the Pakistani intelligence when they came upon the scene.
0: What about the underage children of these women who are also in custody? Uh, Osama bin Laden's Yemeni wife, you mentioned Amal Fateh, had two sons with uh, Osama bin Laden who are now about eight and six years old. You'd think that al-Qaeda followers might rally behind bin Laden's sons at some point in the future. Will, Will anyone be keeping track of them or will they just disappear now?
3: Well, one of the sons who was present in the house, his name was Khalid, and he was 20 years old. He was killed by the advancing American forces. His older children, his older surviving children from that raid are both women. Both of those have been charged under these recent charges and will be deported in the next couple of weeks. So most of the other children, it seems, are minors. One of the very interesting things that came out of Amalfate's account to uh, Pakistani officials which surfaced last week was that she said that she had actually in fact given birth to four children, two while they were hiding in a place called Haripur and two while they were living in that house in Abbottabad. For the first two children she said that she delivered those babies while she was at a government hospital in Haripur. By her account, she only stayed in the hospital for two to three hours on each occasion, presumably so that she wouldn't attract attention. But again, it raises these very uncomfortable questions for the Pakistani authorities about how these people who obviously were not from Pakistan, how they managed to avoid even arousing the suspicions of local officials or the authorities in these towns where they were living.
0: And what about Saudi Arabia and Yemen? Do do they want these people back?
3: Well, the government of Yemen has been very clear that it does want Amal al back. Uh, the Saudis have been a little bit more ambiguous, but there have been some suggestions that the Saudi authorities have, at the very least, been prepared to issue travel documents that would enable these other two wives to travel back to their home country. But what would happen to them subsequent to that is really just not clear right now.
0: What what sense do you have of the reaction among the U.S. intelligence community to the news that Pakistan plans to deport these people, Declan? D- didn't the U.S. want access to bin Laden's wives?
3: Well, the U.S. does want access to bin Laden's wives, but I think there are two issues. One is the deportation of these women wouldn't necessarily hurt. In fact, it may enhance America's chance of speaking with them because, of course, the governments of both Yemen and Saudi Arabia have quite close relations to the U.S., in fact, arguably to some degree closer relations than they do with Pakistan at the moment. And then secondly, there is an issue of whether these women themselves would be willing to speak to Americans in this country or indeed in any other one.
0: Declan Walsh, the New York Times Pakistan correspondent, speaking with us from Islamabad. Thank you very much, Declan. My pleasure. Still to come on the program, the mysterious appeal of a diamond-encrusted skull, On the world from PRI.
2: The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Some good news now. In Colombia, ten former hostages are reunited with their families today. Each had been held for more than a decade by the FARC rebel group. The ten soldiers and policemen were released yesterday, and the FARC has announced that it's getting out of the kidnapping business. But the rebels are still believed to be holding hundreds of civilian hostages. Reporter John Otis in the capital, Bogota, says the reunions were pretty emotional
4: when you have a loved one that's lost in the jungle for that long it's almost uh it's almost worse than they're being dead because they're both alive and dead at the same time you know they're alive but you're worrying about them and you never know if you're going to see them again and when these guys uh, finally returned home after 12 14 years uh some of them didn't even even recognize their loved ones there was a little there was a a youngster named uh, Jonathan who said My father didn't even recognize me. Uh, His father was Sergeant Robinson Salcedo, who had been held for 14 years. Why were these uh, soldiers and police being held? Well, Marco, the FARC had a policy to capture government troops and also politicians. And what they wanted to do was swap them, put pressure on the government to release FARC prisoners that were being held in Colombian jails. And that worked in a couple of occasions, uh, but uh, more recent Colombian governments over the past 10 years have refused to deal with the FARC. They've refused to hold any sorts of prisoner exchanges, and so the strategy
0: just wasn't working anymore for the FARC. Now, this kidnapping business, this was the FARC's business model for so many years. Uh, Earlier this year, though, the FARC said it was getting out of the business of kidnapping for ransom. But uh, as we said earlier, they're still holding many civilians. Can you tell us how many?
4: Well, Marco, we don't really know. Um, Some estimates uh, put the figure in the hundreds, but the FARC has simply never accounted for many of the civilians they've kidnapped over the years, and it's assumed that many of them are dead. I think we should also keep in mind that about a month ago, the FARC came out and said, we are going to stop uh, kidnapping civilians for ransom. But the FARC is also heavily involved in drug trafficking, and they're also very heavily involved in extortion schemes. And so a lot of people believe that the FARC is, this is just a cynical move by the FARC to get a little good publicity, but they're going to keep drug trafficking and keep uh, extorting businesses and making money in other forms. It's really a lot of, it's, it's a big hassle to hold on to prisoners out in the jungle for them. They have to dedicate a lot of time and a lot of uh, guerrilla guards to guard these people. They have to shuttle them around the jungle uh, when the army is coming after them. So holding hostages is, really is a big hassle, and I think the FARC is finding easier ways to make money.
0: You know, John, it seemed like not so long ago the FARC was all powerful. Why are they now seemingly on the back foot? They can still cause a lot of trouble, but they
4: are a lot weaker than they were 10 or 15 years ago. Back then, the FARC had about 15,000 fighters. And there was a lot of fear that they might take over the country. Today, thanks to a US backed military offensive that that took about 10 years, all that has really hurt the FARC very badly. They've now got perhaps six or 7,000 fighters and they've been pushed back into more remote areas of the country. That makes them less of a threat and it makes it harder for them to hold on to hostages, which is one of the reasons that we've seen
0: these releases. Reporter John Otis speaking with us from the Colombian capital, Bogota. Thank you, John. Thanks very much, Marco. It's been more than 30 years since reggae icon Bob Marley died. The passage of time hasn't diminished his appeal, and there's still room for another documentary on Marley's life. Unlike earlier films and biographies, though, this one was authorized by Marley's family. BBC arts correspondent Rebecca Jones has more.
5: His songs still sell in their thousands. His image adorns t-shirts and posters around the world.
6: Get up, stand up,
5: stand up for your right. His Facebook page up, up. has nearly 40 million fans. A testament to right. the enduring fascination with the music and message of Bob Marley. Now, for the first time, Bob Marley's family has authorised a documentary about the singer's life, legacy and global impact. His daughter, Sadella, explains why.
7: I've never
2: really watched any documentary to do with my dad, just because it's never really been dad telling his own experience. It was always somebody else. Do you feel
5: you understand your father better now?
2: We have gained something from this documentary. We as the children of Bob Marley learned something else about our father that we didn't know before. Like I didn't know daddy had a stroke. Wow, you know, how how was this kept from us for 30 years? No, no, no.
5: Marley's have been working with is the Oscar-winning director, Kevin MacDonald.
8: The reason that I wanted to make the film was because I don't think there's been anything good ever done about him. There's been many books written about him, there's been films made about him before. You watch them and you feel like, I don't really know this man, who is this person?
5: What did you discover about Bob Marley that we didn't know
8: before? In particular, I think the psychological motivation of Marley, the motivation he had from being mixed race, from feeling that he didn't belong His father was a white man who masqueraded as a military captain. He was 65, the father, when he got Bob's mother pregnant, 16 or 17. He was a simple village girl from the highlands of Jamaica. And in his village, he was mocked and teased and beaten up for being mixed race. So his mother had to get him away from that and took him to Kingston. Hit me with music. And that's where he started really making music in earnest, in Trench Town. This is Trench Town, Trench Town and also, at one particular stage in his life, he needed some money because he was trying to start a record label, and he went to see his white family, his father's family, who had a big construction firm, and they supposedly threw him out of the office. And Bob then transformed that experience into a song. The
5: stone that the builder refused.
8: The stone that the builder refused. The lyric is taken from the Bible, something like that. the stone that the builder refused has become the key cornerstone.
6: stone that the builder refused.
8: That's become symbolic in my film of the transition that Bob makes from taking his own personal experience of exclusion and transforming that into beautiful music, a music which is aimed at people like himself who have been through tough times and saying to them, basically, things are going to get better.
2: All pirates, yes, they Sold I to the merchant ships
5: Why do you think Bob Marley had the impact that he did but also continues to have the influence he does?
8: Bob's impact, particularly in the developing world, is to do with overcoming poverty, overcoming oppression. And even in the Arab Spring, there's a little bit at the end of the film where you see Tunisia, the square in Sidi Bouzi, which is the little town where the fruit seller, I think he was, who set a fire to himself, which set the whole Arab Spring off, in that square, on the wall, somebody has graffitied get-up, stand-up, stand-up for your rights. That is kind of extraordinary. You don't get that with the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, do you? All I ever had Redemption songs These songs of
2: freedom Songs of freedom
0: The documentary Marley will be in US release on April 20th. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, George Orwell's Animal Farm was a big hit in 1946 among an unexpected group, Ukrainian refugees.
6: Definitely, this book
9: made a splash. I would say we were the first of fans.
0: <laughs> Plus a French scientist who's collecting seawater from all over the globe, coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible
2: in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com globalheroes.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. George Orwell's classic, 1984, is set to be made into a Hollywood movie again. It's probably Orwell's best-known book, but it's Animal Farm that made him famous. Orwell published the novel in 1945 to expose what he called the Soviet myth, and he angered many of his friends on the left with his allegory about Stalin and the Russian Revolution. But Animal Farm became an instant classic with an unexpected group of readers, Ukrainian refugees from the Soviet Union. Bridget McCarthy has a story.
7: When Vitaly Case was a kid, he spent six years in a displaced persons camp for Ukrainians right after World War II. The camp was on a former military base in West Germany. One day, his teacher recommended a brand new book by the British writer George Orwell, Animal Farm. So he read it was in Ukrainian, not in English. Case had picked up a translation of Orwell's novel at the camp commissary. Several thousand copies had been printed by hand at another Ukrainian DP camp. From what I understand, it was the first translation. In any foreign language. This was in 1947. Case vaguely remembers discussing the book with his mother, who read it too. You have to understand this was many, many years. I'm 76. But definitely this book made a splash. In fact, Animal Farm was required reading in some DP camps. After the war, there were nearly 3 million Ukrainian refugees in Western Europe. Most, like Case's family, came from the Soviet Union. I would say we
9: were the first Orwell
7: fans. (laughs) Because Orwell's story described what they'd lived through, from the idealism of the Russian Revolution to Stalin's forced collectivization, famine, and mass arrests.
9: This is right after World War II and was very fresh in memory. My family,
7: one fifth of my family was exiled to Siberia. We never found any trace of them. Andrea Chalupa is Vitali Case's niece. She's also the author of a new ebook, Orwell and the Refugees, The Untold Story of Animal Farm. She says a young Ukrainian scholar named Ihor Shevchenko wrote to Orwell in nineteen forty six, right after reading Animal Farm in English. Here's what he wrote.
10: I would love to translate this. The message of your book resonates with me. And I translate it out loud to Ukrainian refugees here, and they love it. And we want to make copies and give it out to people.
7: Orwell was delighted. He refused any royalties and even agreed to write a preface for the Ukrainian edition. And it remains the most detailed and personal description of how he came to write the book that made him world famous. I am aware that I write for readers about whom I know nothing— but also that they, too, have probably never had the slightest opportunity to know anything about me, Orwell began.
10: He's basically said, please allow me to introduce myself and humbly tell you how I feel about your government and the events that you recognize in Animal Farm.
7: Orwell told his Ukrainian readers that he was a socialist, more out of sympathy for the plight of the working poor than out of any theoretical fondness for a centrally planned economy. He then explained how, in 1936, after the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War, he went to fight with the communists against the fascists. He didn't realize there were warring factions among the communists and that he had, more or less by accident, joined a communist militia that wasn't controlled by Moscow.
10: And he goes on to tell the story in the preface of being in Spain on the front lines, of almost being killed, of being with his wife and and running for their lives from the Stalinists, and how that opened his eyes to, for the first time, the horror of Stalin.
7: Orwell said he wrote Animal Farm so that people in Western Europe would see the Soviet regime for what it really was. In my opinion, nothing has contributed so much to the corruption of the original idea of socialism as the belief that Russia is a socialist country and that every act of its rulers must be excused, if not imitated, Orwell wrote.
10: So Orwell was very moved to, like, that's not socialism, everybody. Stop just blindly supporting it. The Russian Revolution, that spirit is over. It's dead.
7: Stalin's killed it. In 1945, Stalin demanded the repatriation of all Soviet refugees in Western Europe. Most of the Ukrainians were rounded up from DP camps and sent back to the Soviet Union with help from British and American authorities. Vitaly Case's family escaped repatriation. They moved to the United States in 1951 when Case was a teenager. He later became a professor of comparative literature and writing at Rutgers University. A couple of years ago, his niece Andrea came over for dinner. Even though she'd been working on a project about Ukrainian and Soviet history, she'd only just learned about the Ukrainian edition of Animal Farm.
10: And over dinner, which was, of course, borscht and varenike and stuffed cabbage, I was telling them what I'd been up to and about Orwell and the refugees and, the, and Animal Farm. And my uncle just looks at me. He's like, oh, yeah, I have a copy of that book.
7: It was his copy of Animal Farm from the DP camp. He'd kept it all these years. He then gave it to his niece as a gift. Andrea Chalupa keeps it in a glass case at her parents' house. The cover shows a large, menacing pig leaning against a fence, clutching a whip. Boxer, the story's long-suffering workhorse, is in the background, pulling a heavy wagon up a hill. For The World, I'm Bridget McCarthy.
0: George Orwell, like any writer or artist, had his critics, too. Nothing on the scale of Damien Hirst, though. Hirst is one of Britain's best-known and richest living artists. He's also the constant target of fierce critics who question whether what he does is art. Well, Damien Hurst opens his first major retrospective in London this week at the Tate Modern Gallery. The exhibit includes 70 of his works, including classics like The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living, in which a shark is suspended in formaldehyde. Also, a work called For the Love of God, a life size platinum cast of an 18th century skull encrusted with more than 8,000 diamonds. The BBC's Will Gompertz has seen the exhibit and met with the artist. Will, why does Damien Hirst evoke such a strong reaction? I think it is about money. They
11: just, people can't grasp how that he, he can get other people to make his works of art. He gets assistance to make these works of art. And then go and sell them for millions of pounds. Uh, He is, as you say, one of the world's richest artists, if not the world's richest artist. And people just can't equate that with what they see as art, which isn't that significant. That's the problem.
0: I'm noticing that he sold one piece of his work through uh, Sotheby's uh, in 2008 for £111 million. Why is his work so expensive?
11: He did something which hasn't really been done before, which he made... A whole host of over 200 different works, which he took down to Sotheby's in London on one night in September in 2008. And he put them under their hammer and they sold for over 100 million pounds. Now, that has never happened before. What makes it bizarre was on the very same day as that work was selling for so much money on the other side of the
0: Atlantic in America, Lehman Brothers was going bust Right. So I have to ask you, in this time of austerity and growing disgust with indulgence, what do museum goers gain from seeing, as critics have called Hearst, an enfant terrible kind of having fun with diamonds and dead sharks?
11: Damien Hurst is a good artist, and he's making works of art, which somehow, the way he constructs them, they're sort of minimalist in a way, that they're very austere, that connect with the general public when they see them. They create an emotional response, whether people like them or hate them. And that is the sign of a good artist. And he has made, I would have said, four or five works of art which are absolutely stellar, which any collection in the world would
0: want to would want to own. What was the most charged emotional re- response you got from seeing his work at the Tate Modern, Will?
11: He made a work in the mid-90s when he was only in his mid-20s called A Thousand Years, and it's a look at the life cycle, really. It's a great big glass box in which there is a cow's head some sugar, some water, and some flies. And the flies feed off the cow's head. And there's an electronic insect device which kills insects, you like you see in butchers. It's called Insectocuta. And so these flies fly around this space, they lay their eggs in the cow's head, they eat the sugar, they drink the water, they go and get electrocuted by this, this machine. And it's a whole life cycle piece. And it is, it's disgusting and macabre, but quite extraordinary to look at, and rather moving.
0: And what about it is moving? Because I i got to say, it sounds like something at an agricultural fair.
11: That's a good call, Marco. He calls a lot of his work the Natural History series, where he dumps these animals in formaldehyde, and he works a lot with animals, and he's very, very interested in natural history. The big difference is it's all in an
0: art gallery. Uh, The Tate Modern, uh, Will, is offering some interesting souvenirs for sale in case that $12 million shark in formaldehyde is not in your budget. Uh, Pick up anything interesting?
11: Well, there, there's a story in that, Marco. There's you can pick up a plastic skull which has been painted, not made by Hurst, but signed for him, for thirty-six thousand pounds. Wow. Or you could pick up a postcard for a couple of quid. $50,000, OK. <laughs> it's crazy, it's crazy. I mean, the thing about all this, and you, you asked about Damien Hurst and money, the thing about it, has happened in the last 20 years, is that the supply has outstripped demand for high-quality works of art, that there are very rich collectors around the world, there's a lot more modern art museums than there used to be, and these people want the best quality work, and there's not much of it about, and it needs to be made by brand names. Now, Hearst is a brand name, and if you've got a Damien Hearst in your collection, it is very, very, very
0: unlikely to go down in money. The BBC's Will Gompertz, thanks very much. Marco, it's a pleasure. It goes without saying that sharks in the wild do not swim in formaldehyde, but the world's oceans are more complex chemically than you might think. Seawater is a kind of rich broth filled with many ingredients that are vital to marine life and to the processes that control the Earth's climate. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program NOVA met up with a French scientist who's studying the chemistry of seawater for clues to our planet's future.
9: The lock to the outdoor cellar is stuck.
5: C'est bizarre. I will try again. Okay. okay.
9: Catherine Jandell leans into the key, and at last, the lock gives way. We walk into the narrow cellar. There's no heat, so the temperature inside matches the temperature outside, cold. Jandelle secures her turquoise scarf and admires the bottles of liquid lining the walls. And so what, what do you call this place? Ah, oh, that's a okay. cave. <laughs> Your cave? You know, it's
2: like wine. <laughs>
9: But it's not a wine cellar. Although we're in Toulouse, France, a region of vineyards, these bottles are filled with ocean water.
2: Well, we have vintage from the Atlantic, vintage from the Pacific, vintage from the Indian Ocean, vintage from everywhere in the world.
9: Jandelle is an oceanographer at CNRS, the French National Research Labs. She shows me a water sample collected almost 4,000 miles off Papua New Guinea. Another was taken off Mexico from a mile below the surface. To the untrained eye, the water all looks the same, but Jandelle sees things differently. Back in her office, she's got a mug on her desk that sports the periodic table of the elements.
2: I can show you here each
3: element has its own life, own behavior. They are all different. And some of them can tell you a story and some of them cannot. Jandell
9: works with elements that tell her stories about how the ocean works. She spends a lot of time these days focusing on neodymium. It's a silvery metal, number 60 on the periodic table, and it offers Jandell clues to where ocean water's been and how it got there. You see, traces of neodymium can be found in rocks all over the world. But depending on where you look, you find different types of neodymium. Some of it's just a little heavier, some of it's just a little lighter. To Jandelle, the different neodymium isotopes are like pigments of paint.
3: You have to imagine that the Earth is like a mosaic of different colors.
9: These different colors get swept into the ocean.
3: It's like painting the seawater.
9: Jandelle's trying to piece together where all that paint came from. Oceanographers already knew that the chemistry of the ocean is influenced by what washes off the land from rivers and what blows out to sea as dust. But when Jandelle studied the neodymium in her collection of seawater, she arrived at a kind of eureka moment.
3: The big surprise was when we realized that the
2: seawater, when it was going close to the coast, was changing
9: color. Jandell discovered that the bottom of the ocean, extending up to a 100 miles from shore, is also contributing to the chemistry of our seas. Vast swaths of the seafloor close to shore are slowly dissolving into the ocean and liberating neodymium into the water. And it's not just neodymium being released. This section of the sea bottom is contributing other elements into the sea as well, like iron and silicon, which are critical to many forms of marine life. Jandell's finding is also forcing a reevaluation of toxic waste that's been buried just offshore. Her discovery suggests these contaminants could end up getting released into the ocean. Jandell's work with neodymium and a growing list of other elements is also helping to improve computer models of ocean circulation and the movement of carbon around the Earth. And those models are crucial for understanding how climate change and ocean acidification will affect our planet. Jandel says there are still a lot of questions to answer.
3: We just took just a small part of the curtain and we lifted it. <laughs> yes,
9: She intends to continue pulling back that curtain, uncorking more of her bottles that contain the world's oceans. For Nova in the World, I'm Ari Daniel
0: Shapiro, to lose France. Ari's report for Nova in the World was made possible by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. You can learn a lot more about the hidden ingredients of everyday life— Tune in to NOVA's Hunting the Elements with David Pogue tomorrow night on PBS. And check out the program's website. That's pbs.org slash NOVA. Now, for today's GeoQuiz, we return to the scene of a military coup that took place in West Africa. Last month's military coup in Mali set several things in motion coup leaders ousted the country's president, accusing him of mishandling a rebellion in Mali's north. Neighboring countries want to return to democracy, and they've now decided to impose a trade embargo. That could mean chaos in Mali because the country imports all its fuel. Meanwhile, the rebels in the north have seized one of Mali's major cities. This, south, this thousand-year-old city is a World Heritage Site. It was once a center of Islamic learning with enough libraries to hold 700,000 ancient manuscripts. In just a minute, we'll hear why UNESCO is warning that the city's cultural heritage is threatened. So sit back and use that minute to try to come up with the name of the city at the edge of the Sahara Desert. You're listening to PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Rebels in northern Mali took control of several key cities over the weekend. They include Timbuktu, the answer to our geo-quiz today. The rebel gains took place in spite of a military coup last month. Coup leaders said Mali's president had mishandled the rebellion in the north. The seizure of historic Timbuktu has tripped alarms. The head of UNESCO today warned that the thousand-year-old heritage of Timbuktu may be threatened. Lydia Sison is an author and expert on Mali.
12: What is at stake is the incredibly rich collection of manuscripts that reside in Timbuktu, and many of which date back to the 15th century and earlier. And this is the highest concentration of manuscript collections, both public and private, in in the whole of West Africa. There are over 60 private libraries. It can be anything from small fragments of paper to huge books and treatises on primary texts of Islam, canonical works of Islamic law and science, including astronomy, mathematics and grammar, but also original works of poetry, commentaries, historical chronicles, letters, commercial contracts, and these are, these are very, very fragile ancient documents that obviously really need to be preserved and are also very valuable.
0: Today, Timbuktu is this kind of dusty desert outpost near the Niger River, but centuries ago was thriving, and most especially uh, with caravans of merchants trading in salt, gold and ivory and slaves. It was also kind of a university town, wasn't it?
12: That's right. And in fact, um, when Leo Africanus, the North African traveler, who really brought the news of Timbuktu to, to the European world in the 16th century after he was captured by pirates and and taken to the Pope. And his description of Africa was, was published in Italian first and then translated into all sorts of European languages and went right around the world for several hundred years in different forms. What he emphasized was that it wasn't just about the gold and assault salt and the slaves, but the most valuable item in Timbuktu were its books. The intellectuals were really the guardians of the, of the city's character.
0: What was it, do you think, about Timbuktu that so kind of captured Europeans' ideas of, you know, West Africa and this kind of mysterious city?
12: I think part of it was the very difficulty of, of getting there, but also by the early 19th century when the science of geography was really just getting underway and there was this huge urge to map the world and pin it down but at the same time there was a great commercial drive you know it was the early days of colonization and and Egypt had just the ancient Egypt had just been discovered and all the treasures of uh, around the Nile area um, and were being brought back to England and to France and so there was this thought that there was this ancient civilization that wouldn't just provide gold, beautiful women as well, but a whole that it was a whole repository of knowledge that they would find lost classical texts. Well, when they found it, of course, they didn't recognize what they'd found because what they found was this dusty mud brick town. um, And they thought they'd just been mistaken for the most part because they didn't realize that the treasures were the written treasures. And so many of these, of course, were hidden and inaccessible to um, non-Arabic speakers. But I think a lot of it is is just this desire of human beings to have a place that's mysterious and distant and, and unreachable. And there was almost a disappointment when it was found, and that was the point at which Timbuktu, the Timbuktu of the maps, took flight into this imaginary zone and took flight into the imagination in such a way that so many people today don't even know that it's real. So, so it occupies this very strange place that's sort of somewhere between... Um, Shangri-La and El Dorado, which, of course, are imaginary places, and yet also has the, the something of the imaginative mystique of Paris and Rome or or Babylon. Um, so it's a very interesting place that has all sorts of different resonances.
0: Dr. Lydia Sison, an expert on Mali history and culture. Thanks very much for speaking with us. Pleasure. Some people in Mali were already struggling before last month's coup d'etat. That's because a major food crisis caused by drought is affecting millions of people in the Sahel region of West Africa. That includes some of the poorest parts of Mali, but also other nations in the region. Senegalese musician Baba Mal works with the aid group Oxfam as a goodwill ambassador of sorts. He traveled to the nation of Mauritania for a first-hand look at the crisis, and he joins us now from London. Uh, Baba Mal, it's a large area. We're talking about the Sahel in West Africa. Uh, Twelve million people uh, stretch across this region from uh, Mauritania in the far west of West Africa all the way into, uh, really, Sudan. Now, as we said, you traveled to Mauritania. It's a country most of us know very little about. What was it like?
6: Very dry. And I was so surprised that um, even myself, I didn't know the reality of the living of these people. I went to see the Alima, a woman, before all her children, the husband is far away, trying to find new opportunities, leaving no food, no water, no education for the children, no hygiene. If any rain start to happen with everything that comes with it, I think he, that family would be really exposed to any kind of danger.
0: And so this woman, Alima, whom you met, I mean, what kind of things was she asking for? What kind of help? Food. Food. Simple She as that. was
6: asking for food because I said, are your children going to school? She said, I'm not focused on that. The only thing I want to have is to something to feed my children.
0: Baba Mal, you're a Senegalese musician who never left Senegal. Uh, you remain there. You live there, touring obviously a lot outside of the country to to make a living. But does it frustrate you to see as you travel, how much of the world progresses, and yet in your part of the world, uh, in West Africa, in the Sahel, the quality of life somehow remains bleak for so many people.
6: People just want to be living in the land of their ancestors, and and they are very well organized, because one of the villages I went to visit, I see the group of women down there who know exactly how to be together, how to focus on uh, what they want to achieve, and the only thing missing is the support to be able to get the water from the river, to irrigate and to do a good agriculture and to sell that or to use that for to, to feed their families.
0: Now, since the Sahel runs through uh, Senegal and Mali as well as Mauritania, I'm just wondering how the new government of Makisal in your country is Senegal, but also the, the new soldier leaders, the coup makers in, in Mali, a, a country that may face a, an embargo and, and lack of supplies. What are they going to do?
6: Some months ago, I, I didn't know that this uh, food crisis was coming. I was in the States. And then when I came back, I was organizing a festival called the Blues of the River. And I'd make a statement on, in the opening ceremony of the festival. I said, yes, we are going into election in Senegal Everyone who's going to be in power, in charge of the country, should know that for the next three years, he has to lead us to, down there to fight against poverty. So I'm so happy to see that uh, Senegalese people went on the top of all their differences and uh, had uh, at least a uh, lesson of democracy. But uh, we are all connected together. We are connected to Mauritania. We are connected to Malian people. We are connected to the rest of the people of the the Sahel. And we have to be together to think about how to project ourselves in the future together also.
0: Senegalese singer and songwriter Baba Mal has the last word on our program today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
2: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet.
3: PRI
2: Public Radio International